Hello, I'm Duncan Fraser, Director of Useful and Kind Unlimited, a charity which aims to develop pro-social behaviour and leadership, especially with young people. Welcome to our podcast series, which aims to explore how being useful and kind to yourself, to others and to the world can make things better. Today, our theme focuses on one of Useful and Kind's key values of creativity. The much admired and missed Sir Ken Robinson, the most viewed TED talker of all time, defined creativity as the process of making something new and of value from the imagination. These are tough times for us to be creative in, and yet never is it more needed, whether from artists, scientists or economists. We're thrilled to be joined to explore these issues today by two fantastic guests. Elspeth Murray is a poet and theatre maker based in Scotland. She describes herself as a versatile verse monger and weaver of text styles. I first came across her brilliant work in a fantastic publication of works she made with participants at a mental health conference. And she's accompanied me in spirit ever since as I've read some of those works at every leadership retreat I've ever led. We're thrilled she joins us today from Scotland. Welcome, Elspeth. Thanks, Duncan. It's great to be here. Graham Fitkin is one of the funkiest composers of his generation. He has written for everyone from school kids in Southport to ballet dancers in New York City Ballet. He's passionate about the role of the composer in the contemporary world. We are thrilled that all our podcasts begin and end with an extract from his wonderful piece, Theosophy, from a very early album called Flack. And we're also thrilled that he joins us today from his native Cornwall. Welcome, Graham. Thank you, Dr. We were also due to be joined today by the disabled actor and activist, Mandy Colloran, who sadly broke a rib this morning. So she'll join us on a future edition. We all send healing love to her. So, our theme this month is about creativity. As Elspeth put it so beautifully in her poem, The Need for Art, we humans have an appetite for art that can't be ignored. I'm wondering, when did you first realize that you had to make things? What was the early trigger for you, Elspeth? Whoa, um, that's a good question. I, um, in my childhood, I, I wasn't especially encouraged to create art and um, because I, I was doing well school-wise in academic subjects, I, I wasn't allowed to specialise in art or music as a subject because uh, they didn't count. <laughs> so uh, I had nonetheless um, been enjoying uh, writing and drawing and singing and dancing um, when I wasn't doing uh, the schoolwork that I had to do. And hmm, there was I was I was wondering whether you might ask this question, actually, Duncan, because I've listened to the other podcasts in this series and they're great. Um, and one memory that did come up was um, was about my, my dad had a very sort of disciplined and kind of military uh, um, approach to, to uh, bringing us up. And he uh, and 
And part of the structure that he created was, was a debate, a, kind of like we'd have family debates. And back in like 1982 or something, one of those debates was about nuclear disarmament. And, and I remember my dad explicitly saying in his summing up of this, that what was most important for our safety and security was, um, was, a, was a nuclear deterrent and not having, not having poets sitting under trees, writing poems. That was, that was just spelled out as being useless. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think I, I, I defied him um, uh, in a way. Uh, he also said I could, uh, the one, one of the jobs that I could never possibly take up would be a, a sign writer because my uh, handwriting is, is, um, uh, wasn't exemplary. However, I've just spent my weekend sketching and um, uh, summarising what's been going on at a, an amazing conference. And my writing, although not exemplary, is more than adequate to serve the needs of that of that ca live capture. So um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but but I but there's been there's been some resistance to um, to expectations around art. So maybe you do realise that your dad's was reverse psychology, saying you should never do it. You were going to do it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Graham, I'm wondering when you first realised that you just had to make things. Well. Um... Unlike Elspeth's um, uh, story that she told, but I, actually I have a question about it in, in a moment, is um, my parents both made things, uh, a lot of things. Uh, some might say too many. Um, they created physical objects. Uh, my mum ran a, what was called at the time, a play school or a nursery, I suppose you might call it. And, and I remember pretty much every day she would come home having collected things. It could be loo rolls, it could be pieces of card which somebody had thrown out. It could be little plastic hats which she'd found somewhere and then creating things from that. So uh, our dining table was always covered in bits and bobs which had to be constructed into something else in some form or another for the kids. Uh, my dad um, uh, also liked to run things in a sort of military, with military precision. He, he was also very creative. Uh, in, in, he used to cover boxes, cardboard boxes, with cloth, and he used to attach plywood to bolster, to, to cardboard boxes, um, thinking that this was a, a new form of container which really should be brought to the fore. You can get a wooden box, you can get a cardboard box, but can you get a cardboard box which has been reinforced? with bits of plywood. Uh, he would do this and he would do it beautifully. And I wish I could, well, I probably could show you some rope handles, little little bits. For, these might be picnic picnic carriers or whatever. They might be some, they might be for anything really. But whatever he did, he did it to um, the nth degree. Uh, so it always had, it, he spent ages on these things and they always had to be perfect whatever the function. So it could be that it was only going to be used once or twice. Nobody would see it apart from him and my mum and me, but uh, it still had to be done to perfection. So it was slightly grating that years later, when I was spending uh, all, my, all my time trying to work out whether to finish a piece on a B flat or a B natural, he said, you really shouldn't be wasting your time doing it. You know, I'm sure that one of them's fine. It's, it, it's good enough. And then he told me about this 
this story in the uh, that Henry Ford had given uh, about car manufacture in the estates where there was something called a curbside finish. If you could see a car and it looked all right from the curbside, it was fine. You didn't know to need to go any further. So this was rather grating that he sort of he sort of st stepped back from his own ideals of complete perfectionism. The, uh, the so, sorry, I haven't really answered your question, but uh, that's where it started from. Uh, my mum, uh, my mum taught piano as well as doing many other things, and she taught me piano from the age of six, and I constantly gave it up because I was bored with it. But I would always sidle back to it, and the reason I would sidle, and I really did sort of sidle back to the piano, and just drape my fingers on it and just sort of muck about, and I think that was those sort of little improvisations were key to me. I sort of thought, oh, I like the sound of that on that, that note and that note. And then slowly I'd say, oh, can I play the piano again? And, um, and so we go off again and then I give it up again and she let me do it. And all this, so. you've, you've beautifully so, raised, Graham, that some the, the next lines actually from Elspeth's wonderful poem is, so satisfying when we can relate as children might to soundtrack, costume, song and understand some new way to create in which there is, thank God, no right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so when, um, as, uh, as I think lots of people know, we run summer schools for 16 year olds. So the inevitable question is, what were you both doing at 16? And looking back, does it have any hints at what you've been doing since? Graham. Um. Well, uh, when I was 16, I was heavily involved in music because I grew up in Cornwall and Cornwall had no, it was a long way from, at that time, it was a very long way from everywhere. Um, and people didn't come to Cornwall. It's completely changed, of course, everybody comes to Cornwall. But at that point, you couldn't see an orchestra. You couldn't see, uh, um, chamber music very rarely came as far as, as, far as, as West Cornwall. It's, it, it takes two hours to get from me through, through Cornwall to, to start on the rest of the country. So there was an awful lot of amateur music making, which went on. I was involved in probably three, four local amateur operatic societies, um, beating their hell out of Gilbert and Sullivan and, and other sort of stuff. I was in the, the youth jazz orchestra down here. I was in the Cornwall Youth Orchestra. I played a variety of instruments. So um, some of them not very well, but nonetheless, I did stuff. I was doing stuff all the time. And having come from two quite busy parents. Um, I think that was, I, I had to be busy. Um, life was about being busy, really. If you stop being busy, really, you weren't pulling your weight and that was important. So I was busy all the time doing stuff. Uh, I probably regret not having had as much time as I'd like to just be and just get a bit bored maybe. Um, I do remember getting bored once or twice, but I mean, it was literally that, the fact that they stick in the memory is because you know, nothing was happening that, that morning and it was day 200 of the year or whatever. So it was, uh, so I think, you know, there's pluses and minuses from that sort of uh, teenager, teenager done as well. So, you know. so the things that have kept going from 16 are perfectionism and workaholism. Well, those things have, yes, <laughs> and that, it's a complete battle, of course, to, to go against some of these things. But, um, but I, I did it, what I particularly did enjoy was playing with other people. It's all very well playing your clarinet on your own and thinking, yes, I'm getting better at it, but that's a bit dull really. So playing with other people, being involved in those little communities, 
whether it was the Penzance Symphony Orchestra uh, or the, the youth orchestra, there was a very big difference between the two things. The youth orchestra was for young people who wanted to play their instruments as well as possible and create a piece of music as, 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 as well as they possibly could. The Penzance Symphony Orchestra would say they're doing exactly the same thing, but they were having something else which was very special. It was, it was a real sort of community thing to bring people together. You wouldn't get rid of somebody because actually they weren't so hot on, that, on the fourth horn. It was a case of trying to embrace uh, the different levels of expertise and make it a social um, and sort of a positive thing for the community, for that community. So Elspeth, what's, what's the teenage Elspeth doing that you can repeat? Oh, well, a, a little bit of everything. Um, music wise, I, I spent my teenage years in um, Retford in Nottinghamshire and I was involved in the North Knots Music School, which meant Saturdays um, in workshop playing percussion for various different bands and orchestras and choir and a little bit of music theory, which wasn't essential. I wasn't taking exams, but I um, was playing harmonica. Uh, and I didn't understand why harmonicas came in different keys. <laughs> so I was shoved into a music theory class to, to find, allegedly to find out. I did not find out until like last winter in lockdown when, <laughs> when <laughs> uh, really, you know, I, I needed, I needed the invention of the internet to help me along with my harmonica playing and, and a winter of going nowhere. Um, so there was music, there was theatre. I was involved with the Retford Little Theatre and school plays. Um, I was, uh, poetry, kind of, my, uh, there was a bit of a nudge into poetry when um, my good friend Truda, um, she won a poetry competition uh, in, in the youth category and became friends with the, the fellow who uh, won it in the grown-up category who had who had interesting friends who went to poetry readings in Nottingham uh, so we kind of got in with a with a with a sort of cultured crowd uh, which was all quite exciting um, and there was church activities which sometimes involved events and youth stuff um, or going to um, Taze inspired kind of chanting things in Nottingham. So it, I was pretty busy um, as I am now with the range of different media and forums of things happening. So yeah, nice, nice memories. Thank you, Duncan. So what you've both talked about is the importance of others. And at Eastland Kind, we are very keen on the idea of how being useful and kind to yourself, to others and the world will make a difference. And I'm wondering where others come into your creative process. So are you working with others to make your work? Do you think of them when you sit in front of a blank sheet or are you just compelled to make something, whatever it is? So there's something about that process of, you know, are you thinking about the audience or maybe the, the, the commissioning group? Or are you just thinking, I'm making a piece? I'm sure it's lots of all of those. But Elspeth, share with us first. Ooh, well, I like a collaborative process. Um, and I've got, uh, wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking of ways that, that um, I actually find it quite difficult working on things in isolation and have found that um, 
connecting with people on Zoom has been really great over lockdown. And, and I think it's just now part of our lives. So there's been times when I've I've just said, okay, I'm I'm working on a certain thing. And if anybody would like to come join me and work on their particular thing at a certain time. So there's that I enjoy a collaborative working space, even if people aren't working on the same thing. Um, so Puppet State Theatre Company uh, is part of a big part of my life. I've been stage manager, company manager, touring alongside uh, um, performers who've done some wonderful shows, The Man Who Planted Trees, J.R.R. Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle. And at the moment, I'm, um, I don't know exactly what my role would be called. It might be a creative producer. Um, we're doing a show called John Muir and the Missionary's Dog, which is part of the Scottish <laughs> International Storytelling Festival. And um, to be, uh, in amongst the creation of ideas and and to um, feed into that and uh, um, yeah be, be part of that process with the audience in mind and with yeah with the audience in mind that's a really interesting question I think um, there's some fantastic resources that um, what uh, is it the audience partnership have put out about um, basically kind of challenging artists in their process so that they're not just um, self-indulging, so that there's a mind on the audience, there's a mind on the venues, there's a mind on the funder, and, and to sort of be um, playing between all those. I, I, it, I think it's a fruitful ground to be conscious of the purpose. And um, yeah. So I've got a schools project coming up, which um, hasn't yet begun. I've not met them. I've not seen them face to face. And I and I don't think I'll really know what how that's going to take shape until I do meet them. And um, planning something on paper in isolation, quite hard. I quite, it's quite challenging. Uh, and, and having done quite a lot of different poetry residences, residencies with a particular setting, to have a brief that that is about meeting that circumstance and and then um, I find more um, juicy than just kind of coming up with whatever so uh, yeah does that speak to the the, the usefulness and mm. socialness yeah yeah and and so Graham you you kind of do all of that from the blank sheet to actually working on specific projects where you're encouraging creativity in other people uh, what what are the differences in in those processes for you? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's a it's like a spectrum or a telescope. I sort of think of it like more like a telescope, really. And uh, there are times when I think about the community, uh, the people who have asked me to write the piece, if indeed people have. Um, I think also about who's paid for it as well sometimes. Um, and then there are other times when I try and not think about any of these people because uh, it's, it seems counterproductive to do so. So if somebody asks me to write a piece, commissions me to write something, then I will think, uh, I will ask as many questions as I can and get some information on the brief, whatever the brief is. And the brief might be quite simply, write us a piece, October the 20th. Um, or it might be that it's about something in particular. But I'll know that it's for a particular venue. I'll know that it's for a particular bunch of musicians. 
I'll also get a feel for the sort of audience there will be, the acoustics of the place and everything. So, uh, so I have to take all that into consideration. But having said that, once I start going on the piece of music, um, I sort of have to stop thinking about the audience because, um, it's, because I can't second guess what an audience wants. And when I have done, I've been wrong. Uh, I sort of think, I think, I think, you know, if I play two pieces in a piano concert, like I did two nights ago, in fact, uh, I think, I, part of me thinks, I know which one they're gonna like best. Invariably, I'm, I, I'm wrong. And yet I still think that I'm, I'm gonna get the right answer the next time it happens. So that's, that's quite interesting. But, uh, but so, so there's a sense of, of, of that sort of uh, telescoping out from thinking about everybody yeah. to, to just thinking about the piece and then bit of the piece and then further down and then right into the minutiae and I have two notes next to each other. And I'm sort of constantly doing this. And sometimes I can get, it's very easy to get bogged, you know, sort of bogged down just in those minutiae without thinking further back, well, maybe actually I don't even need to bother about that because actually the whole section doesn't need to be there or we need to think of it in a different way. And, and then go further out again, further out again to the meaning of the whole piece. And I sort of made mistakes um, in some of the big choices, uh, which are more important than the, some of the small choices. Graham, do you uh, use the curbside test? <laughs> very rarely, very rarely. No, I'm, I'm afraid my, my upbringing is stronger than those words. Although they made a passionate moment to me at that point, it was, uh, it was no, I'm still still having to loosen those bonds a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a, it's a major issue because I think, I think that has caused some of, some of the, the, the bad, the, the disadvantages of my way of working and maybe um, some of the things I'm less happy with in my work because I've been too concerned possibly with that idea of perfection in certain areas. Whereas I should really have thought about other, other stuff, which is equally valid uh, or more valid. Um, so there are pieces of mine which I'm, I think, uh, are nice pieces, good pieces. I'm, you know, I'm quite pleased with them. But actually, their impact on the world is negligible. Yeah. And so I shouldn't have, I feel I shouldn't have written them because I should have spent that time doing something else. We're going to come on to that. It's really interesting because, of course, Ken Robinson says that perfectionism is the enemy of creativity, that it is yeah. a process of making yeah. and making. And one thing I've been struck by recently, thinking about this, is uh, a friend reminded me that uh, I think all but one of Schubert's symphonies he never heard. Uh, and this right. idea of creating something that evanesces is out there. Um, has sort of come back to us in a way with, you know, as Graham knows, lots of contemporary music, first and last performances uh, in the written word, you know, I have this, I have, I have the volume. And yet that kind of, uh, the fact that it can disappear seems to have changed again, partly because of YouTube. And now we're having kind of permanent records. And I wonder how that, informs both of you in your creative process if it does or are you just thinking of that moment of you know be it uh, you know a voice poem or be it a, a, a particular performance how are you both feeling about that 
Um, well, for, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll kick off. For, for me, I I don't think about the YouTube rec recording of it. Um, I don't, maybe I should. It's a good, valid point that you make, but I generally think about the performance, which I'm, I'm it, it's, it's for in some way. Yeah. And that might sort of also come from the fact that it might have been commissioned. I say it differently, but if it's if nothing's been commissioned and I'm just self-generating something which I've wanted to do myself for a long time, and finally I get space and I want to do it, then I have the ability to think, well, where would I like to place this work um, if I had the cho choice? And so I can I can change my at my attitude towards things. And then in that particular case, I could think, and I have done, that one of my works I could see being presented in a sort of YouTube type forum as well. Um, but generally, no, I, I haven't. I don't know about you, Oscar. Um, well, it's a really interesting question uh, and line of inquiry for me. I'm um, struggling with the idea of what, um, if my entire, uh, oeuvre was digitized if if my whole life was digitized and 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 you, you know Duncan one of my mottos is your life is a work of art so um I'm a I'm a collector of various items and objects and and bits of written um, there's many aspects to the manuscripts that are around me um and I, I've wondered if if they were digitized and didn't exist in the in their tangible format would they be would they be less or does that enable for fresh connections to be made between different parts of that um of that archive that body of work and there's a there's a sort of hybridization that's possible with with those online things because i mean if, if people somebody comes into a concert hall to see your work graham they're 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 coming in with whatever's been going on in their lives that day. They're co-creating something in the performance space and they take that memory of that music away with them into the night. Mm -hmm. uh, if people are experiencing um, a, a 2D digital version of that on, on YouTube, they're coming to that with, um, with whatever they've just seen on YouTube or somewhere else on the, or whatever's been going on in their life. And um, and they don't also, um, with all respect, they don't have to sit through the whole thing. They might watch part of it, and then, and then that might trigger some memory of something else. And so there's, there's the engagement is much more dynamic or sporadic or unpredictable. And, and although the algorithms have probably got our number, <laughs> yeah, um, you're, you're right. They will um, then have come to it having just heard. Well, in my case, certainly with music, they will have just heard a piece of music because there would have been an advert on just before they've listened to it for five seconds or two adverts maybe, which have already sort of got their, their ears in, in a certain certain route. And it's uh, and and then to, to go straight into something of mine or anybody's really, uh, it doesn't, it's not framed necessarily in the way you like it to be framed for, for an audience. But it, but you know, it's once things are on YouTube, once things are out and or, or similar platforms, um, uh, it's very difficult to control, uh, to have any control over it. So uh, I, I don't quite know how, I haven't really tried to work that, that out myself, but when you have, with your, with your poetry, um, 
do you get the chance to to set the the way the book looks if it's a book um the, the, the sort of paper which it's on the the, the font all of that uh, well uh, up, up to a point um but it's interesting i think what you know the 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 you know journalists don't have much say in what headlines going to be above the piece um often authors don't have much say in in what the picture is going to be on the cover or, or 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 the blurb and but yeah no framing how you frame things is uh, well yeah um may i duncan quote a little bit from my uh, the poem your life is a work of art um how you frame it when you see it because you sense it and how you edit it's yours to inhabit it's yours to exhibit you are the creator you are the curator your life is a work of art yeah i love that it's great <laughs> oh, i like it yes um, and I, I in a sense the my <laughs> I, I i sort of occasionally think that about try and think that my my life is is a work of art. i've never put it in those ter in those terms but i do try and think of that and i do try and think well you know what is if i'm going to die fairly soon what at, well, at some point i should die uh what you know i would like to think about whether how that life has been lived and whether it was uh you know whether i feel like i've lived it the best way i possibly can i'm, I'm positive that i won't have lived it the best way i possibly can but I'd like to try and um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to at least make an effort. Uh, and so these things, along with all the moral uh, dilemmas of the day, uh, continually sort of um, uh, are part of my life and part of my work of art, if you like. There's those those things. Well, that that brings us very nicely onto the world bit of useful and kind, because as I said at the beginning, these are tough times in which to be creative, and so I'm wondering how we, in such a tough world, justify being creative. I was in a conversation with someone the other day and I said, can we afford to be playful at the moment? What are your thoughts? Oh, oh, well, can we afford not to? I, I, this is, I mean, such an important tool for creating meaning for building resilience for forming connection and um even when we even when it's not polished and and your life as a work of art is all about it not being a not not needing to be a polished product but it's a it's a process it's it's fun it's engaging it's messy there's mistakes and that sort of vulnerability aspect is um we can't pretend we can't we can't, I mean, I sometimes think of, of, of the word, you know, professional, just being about, you know, you're professing, you're pretending something. There's this kind of veneer, there's this gloss, and, and we're going, what we're going through now is, is, is there's cracks everywhere. And to be in an artistic process of creativity where, where we are um, showing our cracks where we were dancing along the cracks over the cracks where we're where we are um honest about our imperfections is is essential and and um there's a process that uh i've been using for the last few years called capacitar which is a collection of mind body spirit practices um from around the world which are tools for building resilience 
and um, there's breath work, there's body work, there's, um, and I will be taking aspects of these into the classroom, I'm sure, over the next few months. And the, the motto for Capacitar is heal ourselves, heal the world. And, and we've got to be engaged in um, work on ourselves that is meaningful and fun if we uh, have stand any chance of creating with other people the future I mean that that it's an artistic process it's a creative process we need we need to play thank you great yeah. I, I know that you've um are very interested in in some ways the political in our work and you've talked a lot about the way in which we are striving to make a better world i'm wondering how we can do this moving into the arts away from just being creative how can we do that in a world in the creative sector which itself has been so riddled with ableism misogyny racism privilege how is all of that impacting your creative work and role and function now well i'm i'm increasingly affected by uh, by the outside, the outside, world outside of my, my head, I suppose. When I started composing, I was mainly uh, just concerned with the nuts and bolts of that particular that particular piece uh, that I was involved in. I was interested in the rhythms and the, the musicality of it, the harmony, the things which were very intramusical. And I still think those are valid, and I still think they have good out, potentially good outcomes for not just me but other people. Um, I also have to think that I'm the first listener to my music and therefore it has to interest me. And if it doesn't interest me, I can't expect it to interest anybody else. The second thing I'd say is that, that um, the ramifications of what I might do I, uh, are the things, are the really interesting things. I don't know what will happen to, to, to a piece of work. And I'm talk, talk, not, not just talking about a piece of actual music which I've written, but I'm talking about maybe the community work which I've been involved in, or going to school. As you know, I did a schools project in Sefton uh, in Liverpool, went into a myriad of schools, um, and it was really, really tough at times. There were children who did not want to be there. They'd, uh, this, was not a, this was not a music project, but I should just clarify, it wasn't a music project for, for so-called musicians. This was a, a project for whole classes within which you would have those who've been deemed to be musical and those who've been deemed not to be musical. Uh, so it was great in that respect that you had all these people working together creatively. Uh, and you could, uh, for me, I learned so much because I could see how the clarinetists and the flute, the flute players and the violinists may be struggling because they had that thing in front of them, which was all about the, the notes and the rhythms and the harmonies, which I was talking about in my own work. But it was the guys with the ideas who uh, who really shone actually in that project. But also, it gave people a, a sense of worth, which um, I think is uh, can can be life changing. I can't I can't take credit myself for for that. But I have had emails back from students and from teachers involved in that, where they said, you know, their their music's just gone by the by. That was not, that was just, that was the music is neither here nor there. But the fact that for the first time in their lives, they worked in a group of eight people 
and they led that group and they and they that the ramifications of that going into their other work going into their French perhaps going into the fact that they now had uh, diplomacy skills or they had all all these other things which you wouldn't have associated initially with a musical project um, uh, were were by far had much greater value than just a concert yeah um, so that's the second thing the, 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 the third and last thing which I'd say about it is that my, as I started off by saying that most of my work early earlier stuff um, was very much intramusical. I am, you know, I am now writing music which is very much looking at what's going on in the outside world, uh, and in my own tiny, tiny way, hopefully contributing to um, to the debate about how 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 we should live our live our lives as works of art or as as community beings. Yeah, Elspeth, one of the things that we've talked about that um, comes from what Graham has been saying is that the useful and kind way believes that you know the world is in such crisis and my generation has made it so in many cases is that one of the only solutions is sacrifice is that we have to have less and I'm wondering I wonder about this a lot in the arts world, that being a white cisgendered composer myself, is there a stage at which in history, an interim in history where we have to go, actually, it's not our turn? Well, yeah. I'm wondering what you feel about that. Yeah, well, that's yeah, really interesting. So the project uh, that I mentioned about John Muir and the missionary's dog is about this pioneer conservation um, Scottish born but more famous in America for founding the national parks about his life and his journeys and um, particularly his his uh, adventures in Alaska now he went to study glaciers with a, um, a, a he, he was funded by a Presbyterian mission he kind of went piggybacked on the back of that and so knitted into his story uh, is is the whole kind of story uh, which is so under known, under told uh, of of um, Native American indigenous culture and the um, survival of that culture, the attempted erasure of that culture. So part part of my role in uh, in in this show is is to insist that that is part of what we're telling in, in whatever imperfect way uh, we can. And, and, um, and it, even when it, you know, it, we're conscious that, that, that it's, it's gonna be three middle-aged white guys on the stage doing their best to uh, tell this story in a way which, which also authentically honors their, uh, honors their own journeys with um, uh, uh, looking at, in uh, their own stories around religion or wilderness or um, education um so it, yeah yeah that, that's that's kind of the the delicate um challenge that i'm working on at the moment and there's many many ways that that could be done and and uh, we've got a way to go uh, and we'll see how how that all comes out um yeah but but, but that conversation has also included uh, discussing like well should we be doing this you know is is this but we're 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 doing it as as best we can 
and um, and I'm uh, in dialogue with um, uh, native groups in in Alaska and in Canada, and um, yeah, it, and but it's 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 hard to come into contact with that with, to to acknowledge that how how um, uh, traumatic that story is and and how it it joins up with our own uh, cultural history in, and and yeah waking up to all that um, brings... have, you, have you sorry to that in um, have you um, have you had projects in which you've had that discussion should we be doing this at all and then you've decided not not to go ahead and do whatever it it might be. This is probably the closest that we've come to doing that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it takes a lot of that takes a lot of effort. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, it's, it's only happened very rarely to me, but I, I, I think it, it's, it, it takes a lot of effort and soul searching. And if you're doing that in a collaborative way, then you might have a lot of people thinking different ways about that. So, so it's. Um, yeah, I, th yes. I, th I think part of the challenge is, is um, um, I think Brené Brown talks about this in uh, in Braving the Wilderness, yeah, and about imagining instead of imagining your most uh, um, vicious critic <laughs> sitting in the audience and saying, "No, you shouldn't be doing this. No, you shouldn't be up there. This isn't. You're not doing it right." To imagine instead somebody who is championing uh, uh, the fact that you have the courage to be there and to be doing your best and and to uh, to to encourage um yeah to encourage you to do your best e even when that is uh, uh, imperfect so i think i think that's kind of where where i'm sitting and 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 the wilderness it is uh, obviously a motif in this whole thing but but the the the, the huge area that sits in between um you know th this is a this uh, cultural icon is untouchable and this cultural icon is cancelled it, it is is a is a huge area and and to to go there and and be bold and authentic is is i think all we can do so this yeah. this brings us back on the useful and kind self others world model to self and i'm just wondering if you think there's a paradox at the moment, which as a result of the pandemic, we saw so many people becoming creative or really valuing their own creativity and that of others, whether it was making things themselves, making it for and with others, leaving gifts of things they'd made. And yet, paradoxically, we are completely marginalised. We live in a world at the moment where politics has never less valued culture. Uh, the creative sector is marginalized as the woke. And I'm wondering how you individually keep yourselves going, given the important work that you both do. What is the stimulus and nurture and vitamins that you have for yourself? Elspeth. Well, the um, capacitor practices that I mentioned—that's uh, definitely part of my toolkit. Um, the uh, faith community is also um, part of the, the the social world, including the um, the heretics group that is a <laughs> part of the St James Edinburgh uh, St James Leith community. Um, friends, 
family, contact with nature. Um, I feel that one of the legacies of uh, lockdown has been, and, and, and I want it to stay this way, is as an acceptance of, um, of imperfection. Uh, it, it is, I think that something of that sort of professional facade has, has hopefully sort of dissolved and people are able to step up and be more real. We can see into each other's houses. We can see each, each other as, as more rounded people. Um, yeah, and also sourdough <laughs> and fermented foods. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Sato is very important, I think, yes. I mean, one of the things which happened for us in our community, and I don't think it's, it's we're alone, it's, it's happened all over the place, is that people, are, are, we've got a, 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 a baker who lives three doors away, and he decided that during lockdown, he was every Sunday, he was going to make buns, or rolls, let's say, from around the world, from different places around the world, and just give them away to people in the local community so one week we'd get some uh sultana and fennel buns some sometimes we'd have something from iraq sometimes we'd have, to have an amish bun which was brilliant but we'd have sourdough buns we'd have all sorts of all sorts of brilliant things and it was such a lovely gesture um that combined with all the other things which you've been mentioning uh, I think that lockdown did show us a way that life could be, you know, life could be a little bit less like this. And everybody was saying, yeah, we should do more of this rather than get back to what we had, that rubbish that we had beforehand. And of course, what we've done is we've got back to the rubbish we had beforehand. Um, it's, and, and some of us, some people are trying to retain the, 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 the little glimmers of light that you, you saw there. Um, it's not just, as I say, it's not just here, it's elsewhere. But Duncan, in answer to your question, um, how am I keeping myself going? I'm getting increasingly cross about things as well. I'm getting increasingly cross by the fact that none of us have any power uh, to, 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 to make decisions which, uh, which affect our lives. Uh, the, the state of politics and democracy throughout the world is sort of, uh, just sort of uh, I'm shaking my head all the time about it, about how the disparity between the decision makers or the elite, if we call, and the gains in the short term for them are pitted against the gain, the, the, the long term strategies, which just don't don't bear, don't don't come into the thinking. And and so a lot of my work, I think, is is increasingly channeled through this sort of lens now, really, as much as anything else, alongside that sort of glimmer of community spirit, which, um, which, which we saw. And so slightly to misquote Elspeth, here and now today, we're here, all quietly listening and writing. And oh, look, just one minute left. So let's try and, oh, forget it. Not bother striving to get a neat ending but let people know there's a minute left to go. And where might the lines lead? Like a path heading over the hill into the valley beyond and voila. So I want to say a huge thank you to our guests, Elspeth and Graham, for all that they're doing to make theirs and ours a better world. Our producer, Hannah Johnson, and to you for being with us. Please check out our website for lots of other ideas of to how to be creative. Follow us on Twitter and Insta. Join us next time when we explore poverty and the new economy with Catherine Trebek and Ben Phillips. Thank you so much for listening. 
Let us know how you explore your own creativity. Have a great day. Till next time, be useful and kind. Thank you.